Welcome to episode 138 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a lot of app news this week with the latest releases of Lightworks Video Editor. The Shutter Screen Capture Project has returned. We've got updates about OBS Studio on Wayland, and we'll also celebrate 20 years of VLC. System76 announced a new project that will give people a chance to, to win a Thaleo desktop, which is awesome. A 24-year-old bug was found in the Linux kernel, and instead of a, the usual uh-oh, this kind of scenario is actually more of a testament to the open source value that is about this uh, open source philosophy, so we'll talk about that. And then we'll also talk about some upcoming changes to the email client space on the Linux desktop with some announcements from MailSpring. All that and so much more coming up right now on This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux good news. Up first in the show this week is some really awesome stuff to talk about with the VLC Media Player because the Video Land Project and nonprofit organization are celebrating their 20th anniversary of open sourcing the project this month. So that is fantastic. For those who are not familiar with VLC, I'd be very surprised if there's anyone who's not familiar with VLC, but VLC is a free and open source cross-platform multimedia player and framework that plays most multimedia files as well as DVDs, audio CDs, VCDs, streaming protocols, and so much more. Uh, VLC is kind of like the go-to standard of also media players, and uh, Videoland originally started the project from the, I'm going to butcher this, so... uh, Sorry in advance. Uh, Via Central Rizzo Student Association in 2000. Guaranteed that's wrong. So, but continuing. But they say the true release of the project to the world was on the February 1st of 2001 because that was when the open sourcing of the uh, whole Videoland project under the GPL happened. And this open sourcing uh, was a, a lot of stuff. It wasn't just the VLC media player. It was the VLC uh, client. Oh, by the way, VLC itself is Videoland client. So for those who didn't know what that meant, now you do. They also had the Videoland server, the Videoland bridge, channel switcher, and some other stuff that they made, like libraries to decode DVDs, like libmpeg2, and many more. And they open source all of this stuff in order in the originally for this project and it was which is really cool about this because at the time this was kind of a risky thing to do because uh, the open source era had been pre- had been started fairly recently in comparison to when they did the open sourcing of it now the free software movement was around around for a long time before that but the open source aspect was just barely gaining steam at the time and that because of their decision to do this back in the day uh it has now made VLC the media player one of the most popular media players, period, if arguably the most popular media player, regardless of platform, because it's on you know Linux, Mac, Windows, Android, all sorts of stuff. And, and because of that, it has uh, hundreds of millions of users. It's been downloaded over 3.5 billion times over the years, which is awesome. And because of all of this, the embracing of open source, They've had around a thousand volunteers work to make VLC a the reality of a great media player that it is, which is awesome. And in addition to 
the media player that they made, they also developed X264, which is the most popular software encoder for streaming, uh, you know, creating videos and stuff like that in the world. And they also made uh, streaming software like DV Blast, uh, DVD and Blu-ray stack libraries, as well as the uh, recently created David AV1 decoder. So there, so Video Land has been involved in so many. Uh, important integral pieces of the media playback part of the world. Uh, so there's there's because over the years they've because they open sourced everything and they embraced open source. This is like the testament of what you can do when you actually embrace the philosophy because you can uh, start with a student project and then make the biggest most important media player ever from it, which is just awesome. And now, if that wasn't enough, they're, they're actually uh, working on improving VLC to bring better video and audio quality, better subtitle options, uh, improve the UI, and various other things. And they've also decided to celebrate the 20th anniversary by sending a cone to the moon. That's right. So for those who don't know, VLC's icon is a traffic cone. I don't remember why they chose a traffic cone. There is a story behind it. I just don't remember what it was off the top of my head. But the uh, the cool thing about this is that not only are they sending a cone to the moon, which is interesting in general, but it's also going to be a time capsule so that will contain videos of all sorts of stuff, including people can submit their own videos to be included in the time capsule. And they have a, a website devoted to this uh, project uh, at lunartimecapsule.space. So if you want to submit some videos or some kind of open source material for the time capsule, uh, I'll have links for it in the show notes below. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say congratulations to VLC hitting 20 year anniversary because that is fantastic. And I also just want to thank you for making such a great media player and contributing to the open source ecosystem as much as you have because it has been a lot. So thanks. Up next in the show, we're going to go from the media playing to media creation with the Lightworks video editor. They have a recent release that I wanted to talk about because there's a lot of cool stuff, some new features, and some really interesting enhancements. Uh, last year, Lightworks became an independent company, uh, became independent from EditShare. So that was the parent company at the time. And we talked about that on a previous episode. I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to check out uh, you know, what happened with that and that sort of th- stuff. But the latest release is the first release uh, after they became independent, which is really cool. Uh, but I wanted to talk about some, some of the features and just do a little bit of highlights because there's a lot of stuff in here and I can't cover everything, of course. Uh, so the first stuff I want to talk about is that they've improved 4K and 8K support. Uh, they've had uh, created some social media templates so you can have uh, square videos and portrait style videos. Uh, what You can actually create the content in a non-weird format, and then do a template structure to modify it to fit that so you output it in that way without having to make a a weird project size, which is very cool. They've also made some uh, appearance tweaks and sort of stuff like that for the UI. But I think the most interesting enhancement is the complete removal of project frame rate limitation. Now, what does that mean? Okay, so you can create projects without setting a base frame rate now uh, because it, it allows you allows media having any framework frame rate sorry including variable rated uh, to be imported into a project played back logged and added into sequences seamlessly it also 
uh, all source clips play at their native frame rate, and once it gets inserted into a sequence, they are automatically and dynamically reframed and retimed to fit the sequence output format. So that's a long way of saying that you the removing the frame rate limitation means that you don't have to really care about what the frame rate is for the individual clips and, and items that you put into the project. It will figure out what it needs to do to make it work with the sequence that you want to use for your output, which is very, very cool. And it's just something I wanted to highlight because it's just it's just an awesome feature to see. There's so much in this latest release of Lightworks that there's no way to mention it all. So if you want to learn more about it, then check the show notes in the, the links in the show notes. And also, it's worth noting that there is still a little bit of a of a caveat to Lightworks that it's limited to 720p video output when you're using the free edition. So if you want to have all of the great features that are available for Lightworks, you have to have the premium version. I hope that someday they'll decide to bump that up to the 1080p output because I think that... Lightworks having a 1080p light output would we have a, a game-changing effect for the usage of Lightworks. So hopefully they consider that in the future, but at the moment, it's still 720. And, and speaking of video updates, there's actually been some updates recently for Flowblade and Caden Live, which we might talk about in a future episode, but uh, I just wanted to let you know about those as well. Uh, we're kind of spoiled for choice when it comes to video editing, which is really interesting, but... There's there's something else that we're we're not spoiled for, which kind of is confusing that we're not. It's kind of the opposite when it comes to email clients. When it, when it comes to email clients, I always wondered why we have so many different options for various complicated things like video editors, media players, and whatnot, while at the same time, so few options for email. There's you know good old reliable Thunderbird. I've been using Thunderbird for years, but it's kind of lacking. While it does have all the fundamentals well set, well built, and it works really great for that, it is missing some modern features like conversations. And uh, sure, it can group the conversations together, like group emails together in the like the timeline or like the timeline list or whatever. But the conversation support in the actually going through, it uses an add-on. So when I asked about why it's not a default feature, they seem to be fine with just leaning on the extension as the solution. And, you know, that's kind of disappointing. And then there's also Geary and Evolution. And Evolution shares simil like similarities with uh, Thunderbird, it, you know, when it comes to like modern feel and modern features and that sort of stuff. But it also offers great fundamentals in the same way that Thunderbird does. Then there's Geary. And Geary is a very nice looking modern email client. But then again... It lacks features, in some cases, fundamental stuff like sorting functions are not very uh, robust. So it's it's interesting because it's a more modern client, but at the same time, well, it's missing a, quite a few features. Um, so now let's talk about MailSpring. So MailSpring has been around for years. It's, I believe it was a fork of the Nihilus Mail project, and it is a client that a lot of people are intrigued with uh, because, you know, for good reason. It has a very nice-looking modern design. It has a lot of great features, and even some of the, the mainstays don't have some of these features, like, for example, read receipts. Really cool feature if you're not familiar with what a read receipt is. Essentially, it's a way for you to know when someone has opened the email client, and if they haven't, it gives you like a receipt whether or not they've opened it. So that's that's a cool feature. Um, however, with that said, I've always had an issue with MailSpring. It was mostly open source, but it had a very critical component that was proprietary. 
And that on its own isn't necessarily a deal breaker, but at the same time, they have this uh, mailspring system, ID system, in conjunction with that proprietary piece. That kind of bothered me. So you see, uh, mailspring's ID system is like an account that you have to sign up for in order to use the client with your regular emails. And that just sort of rubbed me the wrong way when considering the MailSync tool they made to use this ID system was proprietary. Now, you might be wondering, why are you talking about this then? Well, this week, there was some very exciting news on the email client front because MailSpring has become fully open source, including MailSync, that that syncing system that was proprietary. So a quote from their announcement, they say that today I'm excited to announce that I'm open sourcing MailSync, the the C++ 11 core of MailSpring that performs email sync and under the same uh, license for GPL v3 that is used for the rest of the application so that now making MailSpring entirely free software. Now, this is fantastic news, Um, but how does this address the ID system issue? Well, it's less of a problem when we can see what the code that utilizes it, uh, what it's doing. But in addition to that, they will also be making it so that the MailSpring ID system is optional sometime this year. It will take some time for them to work out the structure of making it optional. So right now, it's still you still need it. But knowing that they have you know seen that this is a, a critical piece for some people to use their client or not is just great because they're making adjustments. So I'm looking forward to checking out MailSpring again because it does look great and there's a lot of cool features. And these two things were the only roadblocks that I had for using MailSpring. And now that I know that they're being addressed, I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, a, d- a desktop email client again. Wait, again. Have I ever actually been excited about a desktop email client? Hmm. I don't know. But I am now, so I can't wait for this. If you want to check out the announcement for MailSpring Forum uh, about this news, I'll have a link in the show notes below for you. Uh, just real quick, just a recap sort of. The MailSpring ID system is still not optional, but it will be uh, relatively soon, sometime this year. However, the code has been fully open sourced, as is now, so you can check out how MailSync works if you want to go check it out. So fantastic news for MailSpring. I can't wait to see uh, how it works in the future and give it a shot myself. So again, links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a service that is to give you a solution to build modern and cloud native apps. You can use a simple, intuitive, visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps. It has support for multiple languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. And with the app platform, you can get high scalability with zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, simply point to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure for you like app runtimes and dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also helps you secure apps automatically because they create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates as well as also protect your apps from DDoS attacks. So this gives you the ability to run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud-native standards 
standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform solution. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. So in this episode, I've been talking about open source as a philosophy and how great it is. And I've also been talking about it over the years for, you know, like thousands of times by now. Uh, and it never really ceases to amaze me just how great it, it works. And uh, there was a 24-year-old bug found in the Linux kernel uh, recently. And, you know, you might be thinking, how are you, how does this connect to, sh to proving how good the philosophy is, right? Uh, well, I am going to be talking about this bug and in conjunction with how good open source is. But the reason that's interesting is because this bug is very, very specific use case. So it took a long time for it to be discovered because it was so rare that it would happen. Uh, so it took maybe 24 years. I mean, it's been in the kernel for that long, but we don't know exactly how long they, you know, anybody's been looking for it or noticing it and that sort of stuff. But we do know like the people who announced it, how long it took them. And it's really, really cool. So we'll get to that in a second. But I also wanted to, to talk about the fact that once they found it and reported the problem, the fix for it came out really fast. So this kind of bug is not something that will grade at you. It's just something that is somewhat irritating. And personally, um, for things like this, when I, when I experience bugs like this that don't, they're not really critically pr problematic, they're just slightly irritating, I just typically find a workaround for it. And I admit that's not the best way to do it, but it is kind of what I do. So uh, this exact bug is kind of complicated and it's better explained by the people who found it. So I will leave a link in their, uh, to their blog post about it if you want to learn more about the, the actual bug itself because it's a rather complicated issue with rsync. So it's going to be hard to explain over on this, on this, this uh, show, but I will provide you with the blog post. And it's also a kind of rather entertaining blog post for a bug report. But, you know, So you might be curious about how that's possible. So link in the show notes. But... Open source is great because it provides a way to allow a dedicated group of people to not only find the bug, but to be able to keep going deeper and deeper until they find the actual issue that causes it. And in this case, the issue was in the Linux kernel itself, essentially the deepest you can possibly go. One of the great benefits of open source is the software stacks that you can just look at the next layer down until you find whatever causes the issue. And you won't hit any access barriers thanks to this structure. And this shows how valuable that is because um, also quick, real quick to be clear, I'm not surprised this bug existed for 24 years because in order to experience it, it requires a very specific use case to make the bug repeatable. Now you will see it like they were saying that they experienced it maybe once a month or once every couple of months. And when they started getting it, you know, seeing it more and more because their use case changed slightly, which made it more uh, uh, clear to them. And then they for that, therefore they started like seeing it more often. And then they started digging more. So that this is where this the twenty four year old bug story becomes a case for the power of open source. Uh, they spent the needed time to find this bug, report it to the team in charge of the affected areas of the kernel, and within two hours, a patch was written and being tested. So that is awesome. I wish I had the patience and more importantly, the skill to find and patch something like this, but alas, I do not have those traits. 
But thanks to open source, we can vicariously live through those that do and see just how awesome the Linux ecosystem is thanks to how awesome the open source philosophy is. So anyway, I think this is great. It's it's great because of how interesting it was for them to go through finding this bug and detailing how they went through uh, like deeper and deeper until they actually found the cause. And then when they reported it, you know, two hour fix. Awesome. If you want to check out the blog post for yourself, more, learn more about this. And as you might expect, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to have a news sec- uh, topic, segment, whatever you want to call it, that we don't often have, and that is event news. And we're going to talk about DevConf, which is a open source community conference that is happening uh, February 18th to the 20th of this year, uh, naturally. And this is the 13th annual uh, free uh, conference for DevConf that is sponsored by Red Hat. And this year, they're going to be doing a, a, a virtual conference, basically, so that people who are interested might be like developers, admins, DevOps engineers, uh, testers, documentation writers, or just other people who are interested in open source technology. So this conference includes all sorts of different topics like uh, Linux, naturally, uh, middleware, virtualization, storage, cloud, mobile, and so much more. So if you want to learn more about it, I'll have links in the show notes, but I want to tell you about a few things. Um, this, this, you know, basically it's become a virtual, uh, event this year. And so, and, you know, this is kind of pretty cool because it allows you to people who have no, uh, were previously not able to attend it because it was most often in Europe, uh, now have a, a much easier way to attend it, which is great. But what I wanted to do, uh, tell you about is some of the topics are just so cool that are going to be happening, uh, that you might want to check out the schedule, which I'll have linked in the show notes. Of course, uh, one of the talks is, Formula One telemetry processing using Kafka streams. Very interesting. That's pretty cool being able to take, because that's a lot of data that the Formula One cars send back to the uh, pit crew. That's what it's called. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know racing. Sure. Uh, that stuff is really interesting because it's being able to process that data and a lot of data really quickly, which is really awesome. Also, another talk was, was about build your own honeypot with container SSH. So if you're interested in that sort of stuff with security aspects and, you know, we're not going to go into details of what a honeypot is, you know. Next up, also friend of the show, Neil Gompa is going to be uh, giving a talk about the butter of Fedora, a.k.a. ButterFS, which is really interesting. I'm a big fan of ButterFS, and uh, I am very excited to, ch- to check out that talk. Uh, and just so you know, there is no admission charge or ticket charge for this event, uh, but there is a registration form that you have to fill out, so I'll have that linked in the show notes too. And also, I noticed on the schedule they have uh, a break session where you can participate in a yoga class. And I think that's, I don't know, it's kind of interesting and I'm just curious what how that would work. So I may even just attend that too. Who knows? Lots of cool stuff in the schedule. So you can check out the links in the show notes for all the information about DevConf uh, at .cz, open source community conference. So links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of the distribution Open Mandriva. This is released 4.2, is now available. Uh, If you're not familiar, Open Mandriva is an open fork of Mandriva, which is a fork, sort of, 
it's a combination between uh, Mandrake and another distribution that sort of also became a fork. And uh, so this is its legacy goes back to Mandrake. And I was a big fan of Mandrake back in the day. And while you know, there's there's a couple of those that have attachment to Mandrake, uh, like Open Mandriva and Magia. I probably said that wrong, but also. Magia. Uh, but anyway, what makes OpenMandriva fairly unique among the other Linux distributions is that it uses the LLVM Clang compiler by default rather than GCC, which is most commonly used. And also that OpenMandriva has an AMD Zen optimized version where the entire package set is rebuilt for uh, Zen optimizations, which is pretty cool. This latest release has uh, updates to uh, all sorts of stuff, including the Linux kernel being uh, updated to 5.10 LTS, uh, KDE Plasma 5.20.5, uh, LLVM Clang 11.0.1. They've also updated SystemD to 20, uh, 247 and a lot of other things. And they're also, uh, with this release, OpenMandriva 4.2, uh, they have a port uh, being cons- they consider it to be uh, relatively complete for the 64-bit ARM or AARC uh, 64 architecture, which is cool. So if you want to check it out on ARM, you can do that now. And they're also working on a port of OpenMandriva to RISC-V. They have that in the works now as well, so that's pretty interesting. If you learn more about OpenMandriva uh, distribution in general and also this latest release, I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. So Bitwarden is a password manager that is fantastic. It gives you peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And how does it how does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the best security practice for passwords is to have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. And sure, this makes sense as a policy, but at the same time, that sounds like a very painful thing to do, but with a password manager, that is how where Bitwarden comes in and solves this problem. And they do this by providing tools to store all your passwords in a secured vault. Uh, also, it auto-generates those passwords for you and even automatically fills in those passwords for you on login forms so you don't have to do that. You can have access to all your data across many types of devices like your web browser, using their mobile apps, uh, desktop applications, or even on the command line, and so much more cool stuff. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. And they recently announced some new features including emergency access. So while by default you're the only person has access, but maybe like a critical circumstance requires you to have access, allow someone to have access for emergency purposes and that sort of stuff, they're now making it possible to make that happen, which is fantastic. I love that as a, as a concept. Also, Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it's also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. They could stop there, but they don't. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account. But I think you want to check out their premium account because there are so many great things in that as a service, but also it's it's less than a dollar per month. You know, it's less than a dollar per month and you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, 
Bitwarden Authenticator, Priority Customer Service, and so much more. You get all this for less than a dollar per month. That's right. So make the smart move like many from the DLN community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. This lets you get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. So sign up for their less than a dollar per month premium account to let them know that you appreciate them uh, supporting open source and supporting This Week in Linux podcast. Get a, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is something I want to talk about that I think is very cool, and it's a program from the System76 company where they're doing a, a program called Unleash Your Potential. And this is a kind of a contest sort of thing where you can get a free System76 laptop of your choice or a Thaleo desktop, which is really cool. Uh, there's going to be like uh, six uh, six winners. We'll get the option to uh, choose one of those uh, pieces of hardware. Uh, and also, this is something that's related to like um, a community development sort of thing, or just some kind of project that you're working on. So basically, uh, participants who apply, if they're selected, they will work with the System76 in various different aspects of like being a part of the blogs and that sort of stuff, and also having like progress reports, uh, that sort of thing kind of happening, but in between System76 and um, and the people who win. Uh, so basically, you work on a project for 12 months from the time you receive the System76 machine, and then uh, provide stuff with uh, System76 with like photos and videos and stuff like that on like the progress of the project and that sort of stuff. And then you get to have a free laptop or desktop, which is really cool. Uh, this, this to be quick to clear about this, it is only available for people who live in the United States. So there is a cap, that caveat there. And if you are someone who lives in this, the United States and you would like to participate in this program, you can do so uh, by checking out the link in the sh in the show notes, and you can fill and apply on that form. But uh, real quick, uh, if you do want to participate in it, you need to do so before the February twenty eighth because that is the deadline for applications. So there you go. And I'm just saying it's really cool that. Uh, System76 is doing this sort of thing as an outreach program to get people in, you know, getting access to their hardware, but also helping more projects be created for the ecosystem, which is just awesome. So if you'd like to check it out, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of the Shutter Screen Capture Project. This is the first release in a little over two years. This is Shutter 0.95. It's great to see the return of this project because it has been a mainstay for capture tools in Linux for many, many years now, and I'm happy to see that it is still alive. If you're not familiar, Shutter is a feature-rich uh, screenshot program for Linux-based operating systems that you can take screenshots of specific areas, uh, specific windows, your entire screen, or even a website and that sort of stuff. Lots of cool stuff. It even has like specific ways to do uh, captures of, of menus and tooltips and all sorts of stuff. But in addition to that, it also has an editor built into it. So you can add text, arrows, rectangles, ellipses. You can even do a censoring thing. So you can pixelize certain sections of a screenshot to hide private data if you need to. So that's really cool. And also it has this really interesting auto increment shaping system where well, when you are like writing a step-by-step tutorial, uh, that kind of thing, people like do incremental digits of like saying, you know, this step one, step two, step three, and that sort of stuff. Uh, Shutter offers a specific auto increment shape that can be added to a screenshot. So you just click here and it will automatically add what the next step is. So you don't have to like make a shape, then put a text thing in and it will just do them 
as you go every time you click, which is just a really, really cool thing. So uh, it's really nice to see Shutter come back because Shutter has been around for many, many years. I I don't remember, at least 15 years, but but a long time. And it's been a mainstay for that most of that time. So I'm really happy to see uh, Shutter come back. Now, 0.95 is a new release, but it's not really a big release. It's more of a cleaning up the code and more modernizing it and that sort of stuff and removing old dependencies and that kind of thing. But uh, it is really, really cool to see them back. So uh, welcome back, Shutter. And uh, I look forward to your future releases. And if you'd like to check out the uh, latest release or the program, if you've never heard it before, uh, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is OBS Studio and their merging of EGL Wayland code to natively support Wayland. That's right. So OBS Studio is getting Wayland support, which is fantastic. And it's getting it natively, not just in like a plugin, whatever. Uh, but or a rebuild, I guess, more accurately. But uh, OBS Studio, for those who are not familiar, I'd be shocked if you aren't because I've covered it on this show many, many times. But if you aren't, uh, it's a cross-platform open source solution for live streaming, screen recording, broadcasting, and all sorts of stuff. And its latest uh, major piece of the things that I've been waiting for in terms of support for OBS to have is Wayland support because the big factor of me not using Wayland is OBS. So the EGL Wayland renderer code that has been under review for about a year or so has finally been merged into OBS Studio, which is great. And this uh, follows some earlier work like the EGL on X11, as well as some uh, other aspects for the EGL Wayland code has been merged to offer this Wayland native support. So I am excited for this because it's not out yet. It's just been merged into the code base. So this is kind of like preemptive excitement. <laughs> it's, not, it's not out yet. But uh, supposedly in the next release, it would have support for it, which is really cool. And this is one of the biggest hurdles for me for using Wayland in a bigger capacity because, well, I dabble with it here and there, but since I use OBS almost every day at this point, not having access to OBS pretty much means I can't use Wayland. So now with Wayland support being merged into this, that is fantastic because it's a big step forward for Wayland, I think. I mean, at least for my personal needs, but I also think... It's a it's gonna it's a big step forward for a lot of people as well. So I am just happy to see that happening. And uh, yeah, if you want to check it out, I'll have the uh, merge merge request and the comment threads for it in the show notes below. If you want to check it out, and if you haven't heard of OBS and you have ever wanted to do screen capture, it is the best uh, tool for that job. It's not the easiest to use. It is a little bit complicated. There are other things that are easier. So if you want just basic screen capture, then maybe not OBS. But if you want a very powerful, very like flexible, extendable, awesome capture tool, then yeah, check out OBS. Links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, then please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. If you want to become a patron, you also can join me uh, during the live stream for inside of the recording stadium. Why is it a stadium? I don't know. It's uh, It's just is. So there you go. And you can join me to discuss stuff between different topics and just hang out after the show every week. So that is, an, uh, that is one of the perks of becoming a patron. So there you go. Check it out. And also be sure to check out the 
Uh, DLN Store, you can go to dlnstore.com where you can find stuff like this shirt, the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, and a bunch of other stuff that is there, including a This Week in Linux shirt, and many more uh, like mugs, hoodies, stickers, and so much more. Uh, check it out, dlnstore.com. And also, if you like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. So go to destinationlinux.network to check out all of the great content there. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source of Linux news. <laughs>